We're live. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Timmy Gibson Show. I'm super excited to have Dr. George Simon with me, author of In Sheep's Clothing and several other books, which uh, how about you give us all the books that you've written? I don't have them all written down here. Oh, goodness. <laughs> well, In Sheep's Clothing is my first and probably uh, most popular book still. It's uh, been in 26 languages uh, and, and foreign editions. Um, it was the first book to describe the phenomenon that we commonly call gaslighting these yeah. days. Uh, and that's what kind of set it on fire. But I've also written Character Disturbance, which describes the entire range of problem characters that you're likely to experience in your relationships. Um, the Judas Syndrome, How Did We End Up Here? The Survivor's Guide, uh, to navigating through this crazy character disordered world of ours yeah. and uh, shaking off the effects of a bad relationship and moving on. And then my latest book is uh, expands upon the principles that I first introduced in my book, Character Disturbance, that I call the Ten Commandments of Character, the essential lessons that we have to learn and embrace in order to be decent people. Uh, and so the title of my most recent book is Essentials for the Journey, okay. uh, Embracing and Living the Ten Commandments of Character, the, the Proven Principles for an Emotionally and Psychologically Healthy and a Spiritually Rich Life. I love that. Yeah, I spent, I noticed in your titles, there seems to be somewhat of a theme. I spent 30 years as a as an evangelical pastor and, and uh, walked away from that in 2019 and moved into the wedding business uh full time and so uh when i saw the the title i can't remember how i came across you i think i was just i, I work as a relationship coach I, I do a lot of weddings every year so i do a lot of pre-marriage counseling so i i like to uh and especially when i was a pastor i did a lot of a lot of you know biblical guidance is uh -huh. that's what that's what we called it um because i'm not a licensed counselor but uh, so I like to read and study a lot on psychology. And, and when I came across your stuff and then I saw that you wrote this book, one of the things that stood out to me, there's a lot of things that stand out to me about you. And the reason I wanted to have you on the podcast is uh, in my practice or in my coaching, it's like every person that is having trouble in their marriage or they get divorced, they call them. The, my ex is a narcissist. And I'm like, I don't even know if that's right. statistically possible for all six of your right. previous husbands to all be narcissists. Right. And right. and then every other person that's ever been divorced is a narcissist. I'm like, right. I just right. don't think. And so you kind of worded it in such a way where you kind of stay. I mean, at least my initial view is you don't just throw around the word narcissist. Uh, right. And I love right. that. So why is that? And what what's the difference there? Well, it's a reaction formation to something that occurred about 10 years ago. The powers that be that write the official diagnostic manual were actually thinking of doing away entirely with the category of narcissistic personality disorder. Uh, they thought it was hard to define, and they weren't sure it was even a valid concept. And then there was a public outcry because the features that accompany narcissistic behavior are obvious to anybody who's been in a troubled relationship. So the letters started pouring in, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and now 
everybody is not only a narcissist, but everybody is an expert on narcissism. Right. <laughs> yeah, just YouTube <laughs> so we've it. we've done a complete 180. <laughs> and sa sadly, the broad brush has really distorted the picture. Uh, and I make the case in all my books, uh, most especially my book, Character Disturbance, the character disturbance is a spectrum phenomenon. We know that about so many psychological things these days. For example, we used to think we could pigeonhole folks on the autistic spectrum in various different categories. We now realize that the spectrum is way broader than we ever thought. And there are people who are a little bit this and a little bit that, and and that the range of human um, uh, experience and the range of human composition is just so vast that we're only really beginning to understand it. And so it is with narcissistic tendencies. Uh, narcissism is a feature of many different personality and character disturbances, and it varies as to type and it varies as to degree. Uh, so the pathologies are different. And what most people in failed relationships realize is that some narcissism was at work in their relationship and uh, their experience makes them a, a sort of expert, at least on the pathology of their partner. Sure. But suffice it to say that much of the information out there these days is overly broad, um, not accurate. Um, and that's another reason for all of my work. I, I want folks to be properly uh, to be properly informed because uh, knowledge is power. Sure. And accurate knowledge is much greater power right. than inaccurate knowledge. What is one of the the predecessors or reasons that someone would become a narcissist? I mean, I don't think you're born a narcissist unless you are. I don't know. I don't understand. I don't well, know that much you, about it, but. There are certain traits that you can be born with. You know, this nature nurture controversy has been going on forever, and it's such a false uh, dichotomy. Um, there are certain traits that you can come to the table with biologically that can predispose you to. Uh, forming a narcissistic character. But that doesn't make you a narcissist, right. nor do the things that happen to you in your formative years necessarily make you a narcissist. It's a combination of all those factors, and it's more especially the choices you make along the way yeah. and the strategies that you begin to feel comfortable with along the way. The way, we, we call it the modus operandi, the ways that you prefer to operate in this world because it seems to work for you. Yeah. Um, and um, some of those ways are toxic for wholesome relationships because they're too self-centered and they're too exploitative. Um, to make for a healthy, intimate relationship. So that's why most people in a failed relationship can easily pick up on the narcissistic 
traits in their partner and say, boy, I was married to the worst narcissist ever. But they never recognize where they are on the spectrum of narcissism. <laughs> that's the part that's so curious to me is like when I'll meet with a couple and then if I'm do dealing with them separately, you know, he thinks she's a narcissist and she's saying he's a narcissist. And I'm like, well, dear Lord, I don't, right. you know, they and but they're never never is a big word. That's not true. Hardly, very rarely do I find someone who will sit down with me and say, you know what? I'm a manipulator. I have narcissistic traits and I don't want them anymore. <laughs> like well, that's very I, rare. And this again underscores why it's so important to appreciate that we're talking about different types and different degrees of character dysfunction. All of us have some level of character unhealthiness. Yeah. But there are relative situations. Some people in relationships are far more pathological. Yeah. And so it can be very traumatizing for a relatively healthier person to be seen as an equal part of the problem. If they go into therapy and the therapist has the perspective, well, everybody's got crap um, and you need to deal with your own crap. That's a fine perspective, but when you're dealing with a situation where one person has a severe character dysfunction of a very malignant type and a very severe degree of severity, and the other person has their stuff, but they're relatively healthier, yeah. it's traumatizing for them to be in a situation where they're seen as an equal part of the problem. Right. So we have to be careful. Nothing is as simple as it seems, and it it pains me, <laughs> truly, in the heart to see so much misinformation out there, and I'm doing my level best to help correct that. Yeah. Well, this book, I can't wait to get into it because, like I said, the premise of it and what I saw and heard of you in other uh, interviews just, I, I was, I have to get this book and I'll be honest. A lot of times I'm like, well, I can probably get the book just by listening to all his podcasts and, and, and I can probably piece this all together, but this was such a nuanced topic. And I, I felt like you, um, only were skimming the, the surface when, when you were doing podcasts and that there's a lot more depth that I can, that I can get from, from actually reading the book. So I'm, I'm super excited to, to dig into it and see how it can not only help me uh, as a person, but also uh, help me to help couples, because that's my primary um, that's my primary practice, if you will, is is working with couples. I I do a lot of weddings a year, like upwards of a hundred weddings a year, and so yeah. I you know I do a lot of premarriage premarriage counseling, uh, premarital yeah. work, and and this is just such a great a great tool to understand, especially for yourself. I, I find that it's, and I'm like this too, you know, I'll read a book and go, Oh, this book would be great for so-and-so because they're, <laughs> they got this problem or, Oh, this would be great. You know, my, um, this person needs this rather than, and I used to feel this way when you go to church, you know, you go to church and you hear that message and go, man, I wish so-and-so was here. They need to hear this. But the reality is I need to hear it. And really I can't change anyone but myself. Okay. So this is an excellent segue into something that I consider to be the most important lesson that I've learned in over 45 years of doing this work and studying this phenomenon. 
most counselors of any persuasion make the exact same mistake that relationship partners make in troubled relationships. We know that our ways of thinking and that the attitudes we have formed are intricately connected to our behavior. So if I have a certain kind of attitude, say, toward women, and I have a certain way of thinking about them, I'm going to be predisposed to acting in those same ways with those persons. And what counselors and relationship partners do inevitably, that's misguided, is they waste time and energy trying to get people to see things differently. This happens in church, too, when we're listening to sermons. Yeah. The Lord does want us to think differently, but he left us with a command and on purpose because it's in the doing yes. differently that we begin to see differently. In psychological speak, there's a person who famously said, it's a lot more efficacious, that means powerful, to act your way into a new way of thinking than it is to think your way into a new way of acting. I love that. I have that so written that, down. I love that. Right, right. So that means quit wasting your breath to try and get people to see what they probably already see. I use these rhyming phrases in workshops. They already see. The problem is they disagree. Yeah. They already have heard what you're trying to tell them probably a thousand times, but in their heart, they're at odds with it. Yeah. And what they need to be encouraged to do is to try something different than their usual way of operating. Yeah. And then experience the heightening of awareness that comes with that. Yeah. The enlightenment that comes with that the new way of seeing that comes along with that. And he knew that, which is why he gave us a singular command. And he even said the how. You love like I have demonstrated to you yeah. to love. You just do that. And if you're a follower of me, and if you love me at all, you will do that. Right. Because it will change your way of thinking and being. Yes, I love that because I I didn't say it nearly as eloquent. I used to always say feelings follow actions. Absolutely, it's the it, you lead. If, I don't care if you don't feel like doing this, do it, and the feelings will always follow. And and when I heard you say that that. Uh, it's easier to act your way into a new way of thinking than it is to think your way into a new way of acting. I thought, wow, that just is a way more eloquent way to say feelings <laughs> I, follow I action. I didn't say that. Oh, uh, do you know who said that by chance? Do you have no? no? Uh, uh, I, you could I own it by that, now. <laughs> yeah, it, it was probably one of the Gestalt therapy pioneers, but it's it's all about the doing differently in the here and now. Yeah. And when I started, um, when I started insisting upon that lovingly in my counseling sessions, what I witnessed was not just transformative for the people 
working through their issues, it was transformative for me. Yeah. Because basically what I was witnessing was the movement of the spirit. Yeah. Um, and I was thinking, you know, this is what it means to place our faith in God and God alone. Yeah. This is what it means. Because love does the work, if you will allow it. Right. It does the work. Yeah. And there's there's a method to it. It's a behavior. It's not a sentiment. Proper sentiments can accompany it. And it's nice when that happens, but the wishing well for another, wishing nothing but well for another, and the doing of well by by another is a behavior. It's not pure intention. It, it's action. Yeah. And it changes. It changes everything. Yeah. 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 There's a verse that says, uh, lo the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. And, you know, I would tell couples, I would say, well, they would say, well, I don't feel, I don't feel like I love them. And I'd say, well, <laughs> but that doesn't matter. I mean, you don't feel like maybe changing your kid's diaper, but you change it. You don't feel like going to work, but you go to work. There's a lot of things you don't feel like doing, but you do it. And, and the feeling usually follows the same thing with like going to the gym. You know, right. if you're, if you've typically, I never feel like going to the gym. And then there are times that you start going regularly and then you do feel like going and you feel worse about staying home. And it's right. the same thing. I think with love is, you know, do what you would do if you did love them and feel right. that love towards them. And exactly. The feeling yeah. will follow. Right. I'm, I'm curious about the, the, there's the golden rule. Yeah. Right I love it. I love it. I love that, that. So gaslighting, I've, to be honest with you, I've heard that term, obviously it's thrown around all over the place. Yes. What, what does it mean? And, yeah. and because I, I can resonate with not only personally in a, in a past relationship, always feeling crazy, always feeling like, am, am I just nuts here? Like I, right. it's like, if I in a relationship, typically, like if my partner has a has if she has an issue with me, my wife has an issue with me, meaning she didn't like something I did or whatever. Well, I introspect and I look into that and I'm like, well, I'll I, I'll work on that. So not to do that again. And then this is not my relationship now, but a previous relationship. If if I then turned around and had a problem with them, it was flipped back on me to say, well, why do you have that problem? You shouldn't even have that problem with me. Oh, I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> I'm getting so confused. Right. I don't yeah. understand. If it's your problem that I need to fix, then that I need to fix it. If I have a problem with you to fix, I need to fix the problem that I have that you have a problem. Like, I'm, I'm so confused. <laughs> right. So the, the, once again, the term is bandied about just like narcissism too freely and um it, it last year it was the number one researched word in the english language yeah interesting they, they study these things yeah so more people were interested in that concept last year than any other single concept and i first described it 26 years ago 27 years ago now um i first described it uh, without using the label, because at that time, very few people were using the term and it wasn't commonly accepted as, as a description for the phenomenon. Right. But suffice it to say, 
when somebody is using all the tactics that I outline in all my books, these manipulation tactics, when they're trying to get the better of you, but trying to also look like they're doing anything but, and trying to maintain a fav favorable image, we call it impression management. When they're acting this way, it induces a crazy making feeling in you because in your gut, you suspect that the person is up to this or that. But on the surface, you can't objectively prove that that's what they're up to. And this makes you feel crazy. Example, somebody has had a history of getting and responding to inappropriate texts on their phone. And the uh, aggrieved relationship partner uh, is now with the trust, the uh, all important trust breach is wary of um, messages dinging in on the phone and checks it from time to time. And the manipulative partner says, oh, I suppose now you're going to check everything that, every single time a message comes in. What's it going to take uh, for you to, to trust me again? How many times do I have to apologize? Playing the victim, vilifying the wounded party, using all these tactics. And then if we do it with enough force and we do it with enough intensity and with enough apparent conviction using all these tactics, the person begins to doubt the validity of their stance. They even eventually begin to doubt their own sanity. Uh, and this, in a nutshell, is the gaslighting effect. Okay. It's a way to get the other person to see things the way you see them, to back down, to cave in to your demands, et cetera, et cetera. And it's very toxic um, to a relationship. And the eye-opener for me in all relationships and why I wrote and titled the book, actually, my wife suggested the title. Okay. And th <laughs> thanks to that great blessing, the title alone has probably sold more, more hundreds of thousands of books than anything else. But what I came to realize is that our old psychology that concerned itself primarily with people's fears and insecurities is a misguided psychology because most of the time problems have to do with all the fighting we do and the ways that we fight. And we don't always fight out of need or out of fear. We fight mostly out of desire. We fight for the things that we want and for the position of dominance that we want to occupy in a relationship. And how we conduct that fight defines our character. Interesting. How well we will respect certain limits and boundaries. How, to what degree will we fight constructively as opposed to destructively only to maintain a position of power over our partner. That defines our character more than anything else. And we are pitiful when it comes to a psychology of our aggressive inclinations as human beings. We would rather focus on fears and insecurities because that's what we know about. But I got to tell you, that pales in comparison, especially in our age of entitlement and 
pretty rampant narcissistic self-focus in this age where people have so much and feel entitled to so much how we fight for the things we want and what we're willing to inflict in the name of getting what we want is the greater issue and we don't have an adequate psychology for it so i had to develop my own yeah so what 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 does it take for someone who has a character especially a major character flaw and i'll be honest in my personal journey i came from a very uh, the reason I, I walked away from kind of the fundamental evangelical taking the Bible literally uh, true, I walked away from that viewpoint. I would still say I'm spiritual. I still value the teachings of Jesus. I mean, there's certain things that I still really value. Um, but the guilt and the shame that, you know, masturbation was wrong cussing was wrong i mean it was just there was i was raised in such a strict you know men couldn't have tattoos well i'm covered in tattoos can't have earrings yeah. on men men have to have short hair and i have you know really long hair like there's just there were all these things and i just never felt like i measured up and so it began to fill me with all this guilt and shame guilt and shame guilt and shame but but it took me some time to really to really be triggered to realize that that led me to hide and there i'm sure there's some childhood traumas or traumas i don't like that victim mentality which I'm, I'm curious what you think about that i don't view myself as a victim on one hand i'm like i had a wonderful life um though if you kind of pick it apart it has its its things right i had three dads by the time i was uh six and at six years old my dad who's now my dad now still my dad they're still married today he was my you know constant and my mom had me when she was 16, so she lived at home. So I had my grandparents that were present. Um, but anyway, I realized that in myself, I was, I hid, I would hide. And I would, yeah. you know, I would be the kind of person that would get a, my car out of the shop and get it fixed and then sell it real quick. And I, I wouldn't mention that I just got it out of the shop. You know, now, now I would say, hey, I've been having some electrical issues. I don't know what's going on with this car. I just got out of the shop. It's all right. working right now. I mean, I'm just full disclosure. I couldn't live with myself without being fully honest now as a 54 year old. Uh, but, but man, doctor, it took me a, it took me a while to get out of that pattern of always just thinking about myself. It, at right. one point so you, I, you learned how to crudely take care of yourself. Um, and, um, and you had some major trust issues. So uh, clearly, uh, well, from what you say, you managed to work through them and you're in a different place right now. Yeah, right? lots of therapy and lots of, <laughs> you know, and it's, it's, it's wild how when you really look in the mirror, I think what happened to me is I, I went through kind of the midlife crisis and lost my grandfather, passed away. My younger sister died. Uh, there was just some big events that happened in my life. And I looked yeah. in the mirror honestly and thought yeah. i see boogers like uh, there's yeah. there's boogers uh, in <laughs> boy you, okay so you ask a very important question what does it take that's what you were asking and what you just said there is something i emphasize in every single workshop that i've ever done because i have known you know i i consulted the various penal institutions for a long time and i even set up programs etc cetera, etc cetera. I've worked with some of the most 
seriously, I mean, really seriously, disturbed characters that you can even imagine. People who have done the unthinkable. Wow. And not just once. And with apparent heartlessness. Wow. And I have witnessed some people actually turn their lives around. Wow. And there's only one thing in common, and it was never guilt. It was always that look in the mirror. It was, uh, hang on one second, I have to get rid of it. All right, we're going to take a quick commercial break and be right back with Dr. George Simon. Did that interrupt anything? Uh, Nope, not at all. Okay. Um, It was that look in the mirror. It was that reckoning with who I am. There's such a thing as shame that is toxic, but there's also such a thing as shame that is constructive. And if there's anything that defines the most malignant of narcissists, it's shamelessness. Mm. That's interesting. Shame can lead to change is what I say. It can. It can. The right kind of shame in the right doses can be pivotal. So that look in the mirror you described was always the key. Yeah. It was when when I decided that how I defined myself and the manner in which I have been operating disgusts me now or troubles me enough now that I want to redefine myself and want to redefine my modus operandi, that makes all the difference. And when you ask, what does it take? Usually it takes God with a two by four upside your head. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Usually. Yeah. (laughs) But it can come about in other ways too. Yeah. It can be, well, as, as the movement first learned after he departed this world, it can come about with the infectiousness of radical love. Uh, when people experience that, it can be transformative, yeah. especially for people who have never known it or known its power. So there are many ways that it can happen, Yeah, but it can and does happen. Unfortunately, as stubborn as we mostly tend to be, as most of us tend to be, it's usually with that two by four upside the head that says, okay, you have to stop now. Yeah. And the folks in AA call this hitting bottom. Yeah. You know, when, when, you know, there's just nothing left. Yeah. Um, and it's either change or die. Yeah. Yeah. So what, I, what is the victimhood mentality? When people talk about victimhood, and I see this, I'm on social media, which I don't like to be, but I'm on there for my business. I don't do a lot of reading on social media, but I do a lot of posting and putting things out there. But there's, you know, on occasion that I see some things and I, I see so many people talking about their PS, PTSD and their, their trauma and their victimhood and this and that and this and that. And I'm like, huh. 
And I just don't know what I think about that. And maybe, maybe it's possible that I'm wrong, but I just feel like, man, I feel like so many people seem to play into victimhood. It's like it gives them an excuse of why it is the way it is. Well, we are creatures of economy. We are hardwired that way. This is the interesting thing about this human experience. You know, Tehard de Chardin said, we are not human creatures looking for a spiritual experience. We are inherently spiritual creatures having a very human experience. Interesting. I like that. <laughs> okay. And it has a purpose. <laughs> yeah. It has a purpose, this experience, but it's a rather interesting experience. Um, and we are hardwired, interestingly enough, to be creatures of economy. We want the maximum benefit for the least amount of effort. This is the way it goes. And this is the beef that I have with traditional evangelical approaches. When somebody asks you the magic question, are you saved? What's the magic words of the answer? If someone says, are you saved? Yeah. I go to church or they'll say, by the blood of Jesus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all about the magic words about accepting the Lord. Oh, accepting your... Jesus as your Savior. Yeah, I got you. I'm sorry. Yeah. Moving those jaws requires nothing. Right. Doing what he does not, doing what he more than suggests, what he commands, doing that. Even with those who don't think like us, who don't believe like us, who don't act like us, who don't even like us, who may even hate us, doing as he demands, that's hard. Yeah. Most of us don't want to do that. We'd rather say the magic words. Right. And lord it over those who don't say the magic words. <laughs> right. It's almost like Paul's <laughs> argument between faith and versus works. I know. You know, one of my struggles with the evangelical movement, because I was also part of the, the Word of Faith, the name it, claim it, prosperity, health and wealth gospel, too. Right, right. And that's, you know, that's just squirrely in my opinion. But anyway, when I the one of the challenges I really had is this realization. I had someone ask me, they said, so according to your beliefs, this was years ago, according to your beliefs, Ted Bundy's in heaven because he accepted Jesus into his heart before he was executed. And Anne Frank is in hell because she didn't accept Jesus. And I thought, yeah, that that's messed up. And, and I don't believe that. And I don't know what I think about that at the time. And that, that question has just stuck with me. Uh, yeah. and, and that was one of my biggest, if you say grievances with the evangelical church was just yeah. this idea that simply based upon a belief or a confession of a thing was going to then get you eternity in heaven. Right. And yet right. you could live your whole life as right. though, as though you did accept though you right. didn't. So here's the thing about that. You know, our minds think dualistically. We want to know, is it this or is it that? And it's possible. It's possible that there could be truth in that scenario that you paint. In other words, if someone has truly opened their heart to a relationship with the divine, 
that in fact is a saving act. And if someone has closed their heart to a relationship to the divine, that is an inherently self-damaging and self-damning act. So there could possibly be some truth to that notion, but it's not the truth. It's not the truth in the way that many people mean that truth to be. Right, right. <laughs> so, so um, you know, we've always had the sanctimonious among us. Yeah. Um, and isn't it nice to know to walk through life knowing that you're okay and somebody else isn't? Right. And isn't it magnanimous of you to help them see the light? <laughs> uh, but he has only one command for us, and he's dead serious about it. Yeah. And we say with our lips that we believe that he has the authority as the divine incarnate to issue that command and that we do well to heed it. Yeah. But we don't. Right. We don't. Matter of fact, we regard him, most of us, in our actions. I'm talking about the actions that speak louder than any of our words. Yeah. Most of us think, you know, this is really nice, theoretically, esoterically, aspirationally, but horribly impractical. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Well-meaning advice, but yeah, <laughs> you know, life is life and reality is reality. Thank God I'm saved and you're not. <laughs> yeah. Would you would you think that part of the journey of self-discovery and growing? You know, I've I've always been challenged by the statement of people that can change, and I believe, I mean, ultimately, of course, people can change. I always say, well, people can grow. You know, right. I, I really believe they can grow, but. Um, right. What, I mean, as uh, you have to recognize it first, right? So once you realize, huh, there's some patterns in my relationships that seem to be reoccurring. I'm the common denominator. <laughs> right. What, how do you go about that change? Like what would be some very practical uh, things that you would recommend for someone that does actually recognize that, hmm, man, you know, my relationships never work out and I seem to go through them like this or I, whatever the issue might be. And, you know, they recognize like I had someone actually, I was so impressed with this. I said, wow, the fact that you've recognized this means that there's hope. But they said, you know, I realized that I blame everybody else for my troubles, yeah. you know, blame the government. I mean, I've had people say, you know, cause I live in Kansas city and I also work as a date coach. And they'll say, Kansas City is the worst place to be single. <laughs> like, I have a feeling that no matter what city you were in, it's going to be bad. <laughs> right, right. You know, so it's like you're the, you know, you're the common denominator. What would you recommend to those folks moving forward to really see some wow, that's, powerful that's growth? The question. Yeah, that's the question of the day. And I'm so glad that you even focus on that because that's the most important thing you know we are inherently already in a relationship with the divine intention that sustains this whole universe 
we're already in a relationship. Oh, interesting. The nature of that relationship is ours to define. Yeah. Because on the other end, it's already defined. It's unconditional and undeserved, unmerited, freely given, absolute, infinite love. Yeah. So that part's already defined. Our response is not right. is not already defined, okay? So the first thing we have to do is pay attention to it. And at some point, at some point when we're paying enough attention, when we're beginning to really know ourselves at the core, not the phony self that we construct, but the real spiritual soul of us, then it's all about discerning what the perfect lover looks like. And then comes the really challenging part, being that, hmm. not just imagining what that would look like on the receiving end, not just imagining what the perfect lover looks and feels like, but actually being that. Yeah. Yeah. And to the best of our ability at any point in time. And here's something that um, not enough attention to is given to. In our culture, in modern culture, most modern cultures, we pay attention to and give credit for people, places, things, circumstances, traits, qualities, all kinds of things that we cannot legitimately claim credit for. For example, parents will tell their children what beautiful blue eyes they have, or how smart they are, or how talented they are at gymnastics, or whatever the case may be, like they had anything what so ever to do with those gifts. You want to inflate an ego, you say those things. You pay attention to those things. You will make a little narcissist <laughs> of that child. What we can can't claim credit for is the nature of our response, our freely chosen response to the love that we're already given, the undeserved breath that we already draw. That's on us, and we give no credit or recognition to that Interesting. in our culture. Yeah. It's destroying us. Yeah, that's where the character development would come from. That's where it is. And we're even afraid to own it ourselves. When we, when we step up and make the noble choice, we're even hesitant to give ourselves credit. That's what's wrong with us. Yeah. That is really fascinating, that perspective. I hadn't really thought about it. Even for those that wouldn't be re religious, I think that they could even say, I mean, they're in a relationship with this world. You know, I mean, again, I'm thinking as those that maybe listen that, that have no religious connotation, you know, they're still in a relationship with the world. And so how you present yourself and how you show up in this world is powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And giving credit to the divine for what belongs to the divine and giving credit to yourself 
for what truly belongs to you, which is the right exercise of your free will. That's important. You give credit where credit is due. Yeah. And that is the death of narcissism. That begins the death of narcissism right there in whatever its manifestation or degree. Yeah. That's the death of it right there. Wow. That is really, yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, makes me just like, I really, I'm going to read your book today. <laughs> if I could have got it sooner, I'd have had it read by the time we, we had this conversation. Well, you'll really only get all that by putting them all together, you know, cause each, each one of the five books kind of takes a different approach. Uh, and you might particularly enjoy coming from your background, you might particularly enjoy the Judas syndrome too, yeah. but, uh, um, I really tried to put it all together in essentials for the journey because I am so committed. I'm 70, almost 76 years old now. I don't know how much longer I'll be doing any of this, yeah. but if I leave anything, I want to, uh, leave with knowing that I did what we I could to uh, restore the importance of character um, to our human milieu. We used to understand, I, I'm old enough to remember, I'm old enough to remember this. People say nothing new under the sun. That's true to a certain extent, but I'm old enough to remember when if there was a person with a with an incredible degree of talent who would have had who would have helped any sports team win the pennant or the stanley cup or whatever prize was available for the sports discipline there was even a remote chance that because of their character they would likely bring some disgrace upon the team I can remember when those very talented people weren't even they were considered. overlooked, right? They were overlooked. They weren't even considered. Now people of all kinds of despicable character are given hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah. You see it. I uh, mean, this is publicly within, politically. This, this has happened within my lifetime. So don't tell me things haven't changed. Yeah. Yeah. I just did a, I'm not a big tweeter, but I did tweet this the other day. I had this overwhelming sense as I was honestly watching a lot of your video interviews and, and just really digging into my own heart. I used to be good at appearing good. Yeah. And now my concern is to be good at being, being good. good. And that's yeah. the different, you know, the difference I, I was coaching this young, that with this, middle-aged man who had gone through a, a divorce and, and he had cheated and, and he was realizing there was some issues and, and he's, I told him, I said, you know, here's the thing that I want to help you understand is it's, it's not that you betrayed your partner, though you did. It's that you betrayed yourself. Now, I mean, if you're religious, you would say you betrayed God, but it's like you betrayed yourself first. You cheated your own character. And in turn, because you cheated your own character, you then hurt another person. Yeah. If you, if, if we can work hard to be 
you know, a person of character to where we wouldn't cheat on our, betray our own selves, then obviously you're not going to betray anybody else. So, you know, I was really trying to say, Hey, listen, it's not about you got caught or didn't get caught. It's about being true to yourself. You know, if you believe in God, then, you know, God knows everything. So you're not getting away with it. If you don't believe in God, well, you know it, you, you know what you did and therefore it's going to undermine your character. Yeah. And I want to follow up on what you said uh, earlier, because it's profound. You said that at one point you were good at looking good as opposed to being good. Yeah. And then it became more important for you to be good as opposed to looking good. And as creatures of economy, which is easier, the machinations of looking good or the tough road that it is to actually be good, especially in challenging situations, especially when there's no immediate reward, especially when there doesn't seem to be any personal benefit. Being good, taking the upper road is hard. And here's the core of that. To have the heart for that, you have to be in love with something bigger. Yeah. And it's the surrender of the heart to that something bigger that I call character. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I and feel like what you're what you're all about, which is what I just can't wait. I, I will read all of your books. I'm it's it's touched me deeply just because for whatever reason, you know, something about my childhood, something about the religious influence from the Pentecostal side of what I was involved in, there seemed to be, it was like the outside of my cup was pretty. The inside of the cup wasn't, you know, and it's like what Jesus said to the disciples, like you're more concerned about the outward side than you are the the inside. And, and that was me. And, and I don't, it was never a conscious decision too. There was another thing that I, I'm curious about is, is sometimes when we talk about people, that have character flaws, we talk about it like it's an intentional, consciously, I'm going to manipulate this person. I'm going to work this because I see weakness in them and I'm going to take advantage of that. Well, that was never in my mind. You know, I was never, it was never intentional and it was never evilly contrived in my head that I'm going to do this to manipulate, though I would do things to manipulate. But it came from, it was almost like, I just didn't know any other way to be. I didn't know. I just, I guess there were times I, in looking back where I felt like if I was honest, it was going to hurt me. You know, if I was, if I was honest about my struggle, it was going to backfire on me. If I was honest about what was really wrong with the car, then it wouldn't sell. And then I'm going to be stuck with this car. Yeah. So somehow, somehow you became awakened. Was that via the two by four? Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, I, honestly, it might have been kind of the midlife crisis that I that I went through in my late forties. There was just this awareness, you know. As a as you know, right? I mean, you were twenty once. It when I was twenty, uh, even thirty, even early forties, I never even considered death. I was invincible. I'm living forever, and then I hit my late forties and turned 50. And I thought, huh, (laughs) like now rather than going to weddings all the time, even though I do weddings for a living, but you know, I'm not going to a lot of weddings with my friends. Now I'm, 
going to their their parents funerals or even sometimes their funerals and i'm like man so it, here, here, here's the here's a an addition to the question you asked earlier this happens to a lot of us at midlife now some of us even in our 70s and 80s are still doing the pathological things we did as teenagers um, which is why we have Ukraine and why we had January 6th. Yeah. Okay. So what makes the difference? Well, it's because some people won't consider changing their MO until it becomes clear that they really need to. And some people can't. Because in their wiring, unfortunately, they lack a capacity to care. Interesting. Yeah. And it's not their fault. And frankly, in our evolutionary history, we wouldn't be here were it not for those heartless warrior tribe leaders. They got us here. Yeah. They got us here. So at a certain point in our evolutionary history, they were vital and they're still with us. The problem is they don't work very well in a civilized society. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I'm so glad to hear so you say that. So it's on us. It's on us to never afford such people the reins of power. That's on us. And how they get to us is by convincing us that they will be our champions. Yeah. And that's on us. <laughs> yeah. That's on us. That's I watched a Disney movie the other day. Uh, my wife and I did. It was called Inside Out. If if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. It's a very psychological uh, psycho. Uh, it's just a very whoever did this. I'm for sure they had some psychiatrists or psychologists or psychotherapists involved in the writing. Basically, mm -hmm. in a nutshell, in a nutshell, it's inside of every human's head. There are these emotions, the happiness, the sadness and all these different emotions and they're actual individual emotion characters. And, and so you get to interact and see what's going on. And we often think that sadness is is or grief is a uh, it's a bad emotion. I don't want to experience sadness. I don't want to be sad. Happy, 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 happy. But in the movie, they really let you see that how sadness can really play a role in your healing journey. In other words, if you sure. go through a death, uh, you should be sad. <laughs> you, right. you should grieve and you should go through that process. And right. it was just fascinating how they really just through cartoon really helped. I even turned to my wife and I was like, wow, that was very deep and profound that yeah. every emotion just like what you're saying, these people brought us here. We think of that as bad, but it was, it had utility. It had utility and it's not their fault, but there are some people who just don't have that capacity. They've actually done brain scan studies um, that demonstrate this very, very clearly. The network, the neural network is just not there to have an empathic, emotional response to certain situations. And so when you combine that 
lack of capacity for heart and compassion and empathy with a narcissistic coping style. When you combine those two together, you get a really dangerous package. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, in, in a civilized world, you do. Yeah. Um, and uh, unfortunately, we just need to be careful about handing power to folks who are like that because they will eventually hurt us all. Yeah. And seriously so. Yeah. So uh, I know we, we, did a, we're going to do about an hour, so we have a few more minutes. I wanted to get a chance to a couple things. One, what are you working on next, uh, or is there something that you're working on next? Um, go ahead. I'm working on uh, getting some professional folks to take the plethora of material out there from the thousands of posts to, and articles uh, to the podcasts uh, and, and fashion it in a way that it gets it on all the major platforms and puts it out to as many people as possible. I just want to spread the word. Yeah. Um, and my, uh, it's going to cost me so much to do it that I'm probably not going to make any money on it. That's not the purpose. Sure. <laughs> I just want it out there. This means more to me than anything. I've fallen in love with humanity. Yeah. And um, uh, I think that means I've fallen in love also with my own brokenness. I know how broken I am. Uh, if we have another program, I can I can run down the whole list for you. Yeah, <laughs> so I could regale you for <laughs> hours. My broken pieces. <laughs> yeah, um, but I really uh, I hope for the healing of this world, and so um, I'm vain enough to think that. I can be an effective carrier of the messages first given to me, and I want to relay them to as many people as possible. Yeah. Well, your work is 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 already helped me, and I know that uh, I I've shared your book with with my uh, counselor uh, Grant Wood here in Kansas City, who's helped me you know immensely uh, throughout my life. That sometimes it can be hard to find a really good uh, counselor or therapist. And, you know, I got, I got lucky to find a really good one that really cares about people and, and knows his stuff and has a very, just a very tender, like bedside manner, if you will, uh, and been such a joy to, to work with and has helped me just immensely. Uh, what would be some ways that people could connect with you, follow you, find more of your information? Well, uh, visiting the blog at drgeorgesimon.com is the best way, D-R-G-E-O-R-G-E-S-I-M-O-N.com. Uh, and there's a feature on the blog, there's a contact page where uh, there's a button, you put your message in there and send it off to me, and I always respond. I don't have a staff that uh, insensitivity, uh, insensitively reads these things and only forwards the ones they think will uh, do me some good. I, I I eventually get to all of them. Sometimes my mailbox is very, very full. So I can it imagine. Takes a while. Um, but I always respond, and that's the best way to get a hold of me. And the best way to, to know me and my work is, is through my numerous blog, blog posts, my podcasts, and uh, on YouTube uh, channel, and uh, and my books, of course, all readily available some of which are in multiple formats uh, on Amazon. Yeah. 
All right. One, one last uh, question, just because I, I, in all the interviews that I watched and heard of you, I, I didn't catch this on any of them. Uh, just briefly, like what's, how'd you get started in this? Like where, where do you come from? Are you from, um, where do you live now? I don't even know where you are. I live in Little Rock, Arkansas. Believe oh, it or not. really? Yeah. My, I got married in Eureka Springs. Oh, wow. What a great place. Yeah. 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 Well, um, yeah, so that's where I am now. I, I was born and raised in Michigan, okay. moved to Arizona, went to graduate school in West Texas, met my wife there of 43 years now. Oh. Um, and uh, we raised our kids mostly here. Okay. Uh, yeah. Little Rock. So Little Rock, uh, I have a friend of mine there that pastors a church. I can't name it. I know his name, Rick, uh, Rick, uh, Randy Bazette. Or is it, wait. Pastor Bazette. Did I say that right? <laughs> anyway, he has a large church there in Little Rock. Uh, like, mm. I think probably the largest church. It's an evangelical kind of a Pentecostalist type church, though. Um, but anyway, yeah, I love Little Rock. It's a it's a uh, fun area. And I had six different careers before this one. <laughs> really? I'm just, yeah. what would you do? Oh, <laughs> We don't have long enough. Oh, <laughs> well, that's fascinating. We'll we'll have to we'll have to do another one of these in the next month or so. Uh, after I finish all your books, then I'll I'll probably have even more more questions. But I really, really, really appreciate your time and your uh, expertise. And if you would be okay with it, I'm going to screenshot this uh, this FaceTime chat, sure. and I'll use that as a as a promo. So uh, one. Two, three, got it. And would you be okay with? But when you when you do your podcast, would you be uh, okay with me uh, putting a link to the file or? Oh, absolutely. Printing the file or whatever. Yeah, yeah. It'll be. Uh, I'll upload it and uh, I'll send you a link. It'll be on Spotify, Apple, Google, Audible. It'll be everywhere. See, that's what I'm having folks do for me now too. I've been very slow to this new age. Yeah having done most of my work in workshops, uh, in-person kind of thing. I'm just old school. I'm, you know, my brain is just yeah, steeped in the old technology. I guess. Well, even though I'm old enough to, you know, I graduated seminary without a cell phone or internet or Google or social media. You know, so uh, I, I, sometimes my kids, I have two kids or adults, 20, she, let's see, my daughter's 24, my son's 21. My first grandchild just came into the world a few months ago and, uh, you know, they don't know any life outside of technology. And so it's so funny to, 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 they'll ask me stories. So dad, what was it like? <laughs> and I, I have to hold my tongue cause sometimes I'm like, well, in some ways it was much better. Yeah. Um, but you know, there's some advantages to technology like this, obviously it, it there's, you know, I try not to be that that old guy that's poo-pooing yeah. on technology, you know, uh, yeah. I'll never get one of them cell phones, you know, and yeah. here we are. Well, love to do it again sometime. Yep. Thank you. Blessings. You too. All right. See ya.